Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. This is Paul Axton, and in this podcast I'll discuss James McClendon, who is perhaps the premier thinker in terms of a post-liberal systematic theology. To be very specific, then, uh, coming out of post-liberalism, of course, there's a lot of uh, key thinkers, but McClendon's the one who will put together a full systematic theology. And in this sense, his thought is more exhaustive, I think, at least in an attempt to put together a comprehensive understanding. And of course, just to get a little bit at the what, what McClendon is doing that in post-liberalism, he's turning away from a historical critical or a historical grammatical method. Really, he's doing what Gerhard Mayer had declared. He, Mayer said the, uh, declared the end of the historical critical method, in which really there's a gap that in the historical grammatical, there was always this search that in James Barr's picture, he, he was pointing out that you're always working then toward some sort of psychological understanding of what David Bentley Hart calls the genetic fallacy. That is that the idea that the meaning of the text can be, if you do enough historical study or you try to psychologically reconstruct the understanding regarding its origins, that in some way you'll come to the meaning of the text. And of course, what this does, it sets up an ever-elusive text that's always in some way separated out from the individual, and there's a gap then. Uh, In a sense that we can read all of reality, this is sort of the uh, way that Slavoj Zizek looks at all of reality, that there's always a gap. And of course, my point would be that if we rightly come to a an understanding of scripture, or at least the hermeneutic that scripture is teaching us, is that we escape that kind of reading of a gap into everything between the subject and object, or between text and its meaning. That is, or or even in Christ, that Christ in some way becomes an object for adoration rather than the subject in whom we live out the the life that's been given to us. And so it's really McClendon, and McClendon will develop this idea of a narrative theology. And I'll talk a little bit about what that means, but maybe it's important to run down McClendon's biography, that he grew up in a racially segregated society, in the Shre- born in Shreveport, Louisiana. And so he is going to feel this strong racist tendency in his just the Southern Baptist denomination, which he was uh, raised. Then he'll serve briefly in World War II, and actually, though he was not in combat himself, he did see the carnage, which is, I think, a step. You know, later he's going to encounter the work of John Howard Yoder, and when he does this much later on, he'll refer to this as his second conversion. He did a THM at Princeton after completing uh, BD at Southwestern. He went to Southwestern to complete a, a doctorate. Then he taught at Golden Gate Seminary, and he's going to be fired or at least forced to resign a couple of times in his life. So at Golden Gate, he uh, took a stand against the racism and segregation. He, in fact, supported. He sent his students out to support Martin Luther King, Jr., 
And there was a reaction in the seminary with a kind of growing fundamentalism, and, and then he was forced to resign. But then he was hired at the Jesuit University of San Francisco, maybe the first non-Catholic professor to teach at a Catholic theological faculty. At least that was his claim. And then the protest against the Vietnam War, his active participation in that protest, and he was again forced to resign. So it was after that, I think it was in 1974, that he read Yoder's book, The Politics of Jesus, and his convictions shifted to include when he, he had been thinking of himself as a big B Baptist, and now he wants to include a kind of Anabaptist understanding, a complete reworking of his understanding. And really there is a sense that right after this, when he begins his three-volume work, which will take him some 20 years of finishing in year 2000, right before his death. In fact, they say that he saw the galley proofs of the book just uh, just before, literally before he passed away. And so what McClendon gives us is the first post-liberal comprehensive systematic theology. One way of maybe just summing up his theology, he comes up with the little phrase, this is that, then is now. The idea is there that this is a hermeneutic. It's a, it's a hermeneutic within Scripture. It's a way of a kind of typological dynamic, you know, that you'll see within Scripture itself. And what he's doing, he's encountered Wittgenstein. He's studied philosophy of language. He's done literary studies. He's turning then from a flat reading in which he's going to incorporate the notion of speech acts and typology all into his understanding. And certainly a key part of this is the the pacifism, the peaceful theology that will be there in his thinking throughout. Uh, a quote that gets at this, if we think of the Bible as a single great story united by characters, setting, and plot, to be sure, that single story is a bundle of stories, and non-narrative material punctuates the text as well. We may describe the church's Bible reading as the identification of its characters, major and minor, the discovery of its plot and its subplots, and the exploration of its setting through its many scenes. And so here we see his literary studies then coming to aid his understanding of the way to read the Bible. The central character, of course, and the central task is about the identity of Christ and the identity of God and God's people, the Jews, but he doesn't separate this out. In other words, he's really returning to an, an interpretive understanding that's there in the early church. And so it brings us to the plot line of salvation and the creation of this people. It brings us to the kingdom of God. And so this imagery, kingdom, you know, salvation, these key images are controlling metaphors or controlling imagery. A key focus is really then upon character. And, and character here is a literary idea, but it's also an ethical notion. And so character development in the plot and character as moral formation of a person is a description then both of how we read scripture and the point of reading scripture that there is 
uh, the development of a person, that there is the development of virtue in a person, of good character. We become then part of a, a community of people that, in a particular character formation, that, that as we see the narrative plot and that, that we are implotted into the story, that this then is very much part and parcel of what it means then to be a Christian. Part of this is he's going to use a lot of biography. Of course, the, the story of Christ is a, a biography, but his point is that the Son of Man, Kingdom of God, Israel, are all fused with the historical events of Christ's life. And so Christ's action are, are found intelligible through these images. And so to a believer's life, might be able to uh, intelligibly imitate these narrated images so that our biography finds meaning in the biography of Christ. From Scripture come the narrated images that create patterns for Christian living, and these then are passed along you know, in, a, in the narrative community that is the church. There is still then this whole notion of then is now. Early on, I encountered... Uh, metaphors we live by and of course that in the there's a kind of linguistic revolution surrounding what McClendon is doing and he's fully appreciative of this revolution you know Lakoff and Johnson write the book metaphors we live by and the idea is that language is structured through idiom and metaphor there are these metaphors that are key to the language the key grammatical elements but also then key to thought and, of course, this, is, this ties into the whole scientific revolution that Thomas Kuhn's notion of scientific models of paradigms. And so there's a whole appreciation that I don't think is, is a new understanding, but it's a development that, that flows out of this. And, of course, historically, if you think of typology, the figuration of the past or future in the present, then, is through type. Certainly, this is the way that, you know, in the New Testament, think when Paul in 1 Corinthians speaks typologically of the rock which Israel drank from was Christ. Again, so this is that, then is now. Paul goes on to say that some Israelites did not obey and were struck down. And as Paul says, for us, so that we might not desire evil as they did. That is, that we are having and they had the same experience. So Paul offers Israel, Christ himself, as types or examples to imitate. And he encourages churches and their leaders then to be types. And so the idea is that this typology is authoritatively employed as it, it, by the apostles, and this is the way that uh, we also, you know, the early church fathers, that they're going to read then through this kind of typological or theological understanding, that then types inform and they configured not only then the, the life of those in Scripture, but that it's a way then of taking up the meaning of Scripture in a kind of immediate sense. The, the theology is an immediately applied theology. So this is the typology is how Scripture employs Scripture. As David Napier said, we have in the Old Testament no past which has not already been appropriated in the present, and so appropriated as to be in the present, to live in the present. For the prophets, the past was not just past, but it now is. The event lives in faith. It has been cultized. 
not so much merely memorialized as re-experienced, created, and lived again. You know, you can think of the Exodus narrative is going to be thematic then in the New Testament. The narrative of Genesis 3 is one that is pictured as all people participating in. The first Adam is repeated in the second Adam. But so too then other peoples uh, think of the experience of the black slaves in the United States that they too then are going to see themselves as part of this exodus. One of McClendon's favorite examples is in Acts 2, 16 to 17, when the prophet Joel said, well, what you're seeing now is that, that this is that. And so the way that the Bible seeks to be read is something that speaks to the present through past images. And so the present reader is invited by the text to read the narrative as the disciples read it. That is, we're to put ourselves in the place of the disciples. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul interprets the passage through the Red Sea as a kind of act of baptism. As Israel is committing idolatry in the wilderness, afterwards this is a warning to the Corinthians. Have you been baptized? Have you been delivered out of Egypt? And now you're returning then like the, the Israelites did in and through their idolatrous actions. Even Jesus that uses this typology in Luke 9, Jesus asked, who do the people say that I am? And who do you say that I am? And the answers, they all, of course, are appealing to Old Testament characters. Some suggested that he's John the Baptist, some others Elijah. Peter answered, well, you're the anointed one, the, the messianic figure of the Old Testament. But Jesus himself will use a kind of self-equation with the Son of Man that he's drawing from Ezekiel in Daniel. That you know who Jesus is then in and through this typology, and Jesus identifies himself through this typology. And so as McClendon writes, Jesus was in the business not of denying but making history. And in order to do that, he had to create a new sense of history. The Gospels show us Jesus did this by drawing upon the great formative scriptural images, applying them to himself to divine his role in the unfolding story. He was the anointed one, the son of David whose kingdom would have no end. No wonder this became apostolic strategy in reading scripture. It was Jesus' approach. It was Jesus' hermeneutic that's passed along to the inner circle. And so typology is the Bible's way of understanding the Bible. It's Jesus' way of explaining who he is. And so the identity of Jesus is at once that of the risen Christ present in the reader's church and the central figure, that is that the, the resurrection in Paul's imagery and the apostles' imagery is one that continues. We're invited to become disciples of the resurrection and to see ourselves then figuring into this narrative and the narrative continues. McClendon appeals to early church readings and you know in the early church there was the idea of the plain sense and the, or you know the literal sense and the spiritual sense but even when you think of someone like Augustine reading Genesis 1-3 let there be light it's interesting that even in his notion of the plain sense or the literal sense, the light is the spiritual reality of the church's present salvation in Christ, according to Augustine. The literal sense, then, 
and McClendon is picking this up, is really a holistic or canonical sense, where the entire biblical narrative informs, that is, who Christ is informs the various parts. Thus, the statements in Genesis on light and creation are read through the person of Christ, who is the light, to allow for the creation that is happening now. You know, this is John, the recreation. This is that, then is now. And so creation, certainly it's a past gift. It's an ongoing travail now. It's a future promise. The past is linked then with the ongoing work of the people of God and the future recreation of the new heavens and the new earth. And so typology ultimately refers to the identity of Christ as the interpretive key of Scripture. The Bible is a book of Jesus Christ, a book that is about him, a book that finds its interpretive key in him, a book that points as a witness to him. Thus, the this is that, then is now, dynamic, necessitates that Christ is the interpretive key, as Christ is the one speaking through it. As McClendon puts it, typology thus stands as the chief trope by which plain sense and final point are linked. It was not merely a way to read scripture, but was the way. So a summary of McClendon might look something like this. The teaching of the New Testament is that belief and practice cannot be separate, and that practice reveals our true conviction. And so very often there is a separation in which people may in fact not be aware of the nature of their beliefs and they may separate them out from practice, which at some level may sound a little ridiculous, but in fact this is the way that uh, religion often works is that people have a set of practices and they don't necessarily align with their beliefs. Sin is a self-deception then in which our convictions, our own convictions are not accessible to us, that in some way there is a repression or a suppression. So primary and secondary theology aims to bring out what should be our true convictions. And so in this sense, theology and practice are not separate, that we bring in ethics, and this is why he will put ethics then at the front of his theology. And in this, he's following Karl Barth, he's following Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So primary theology, he says, is the church trying to think out its own convictions. And this gets expressed in sermons, prayers, hymns, the sources of its ongoing common life. That is, the deep grammar of conviction then gives forth in eventually primary convictions by which it tries to live, get written down in creeds and confections of faith or expressed afresh in new hymns and new sermons, or simply lived down in the lives of existing members of the community. So you can look at the creeds as in some way not propositions that stand alone, though, over which life is enfolded. He would call this the Baptist hermeneutic. The Bible and church compose one story, one reality with Christ as center. And we might express it under the hermeneutical motto, a shared awareness of the present Christian community as the primitive community and the eschatological community. The church now is the primitive church, and the church on the day of judgment is the church now. The obedience and liberty of the followers of Jesus of Nazareth is our liberty. 
our obedience. So there's not a notion of the enlightenment understanding of reason in which there's the universal truths of reason or in which science is the model, but it is a community of practice. It's not based on propositions per se. And in the above idea, you know, the idea of a propositional truth or the idea of some sort of absolute truths that reside outside of history, well, the whole perspective of history is lost, but at the same time, the community of practice is lost. Both things are lost simultaneously. And so the right way to read prophecy, the right way to read scripture, is to read it as a disclosure of the meaning and significance of the present. Romans 6 is a description of a present tense experience that the Lord's Supper is an ongoing reality, a reenactment, or a participation in that time. Then is now. In time then also tells us not just what is future, but what is important now. And in this sense, he's saying that reality is a narrative reality. Scripture then touches upon a first-order reality. Scripture is a narrative. And what the story it is telling is primary. There is a kind of narrative understanding versus an enlightenment rationalism. And in a rationalism, you know, if you think of Immanuel Kant or the decisionism of ethics that is pitting the idea of the will, the propositions, is primary. There's a demythologizing of this understanding in which we understand that what a human being is, is a part of a participation then in a community of a narrative practice. In fundamentalism, in evidentialism, there is the loss of story. The story is not the thing, but people would set aside the story. This is the idea of modernism. There's a foundationalism. And in postmodernism, there's the recognition, well, this foundation is crumbling, that it's a failure built upon a kind of dualism. And so the contents of Christian truth and apologetic understanding is something that you appeal to reason. But in this understanding, what we might call not an unapologetic theology, but the idea of the contents of Christian truth contain an inherent appeal. There is a first order appeal that think of Jesus' statement that when I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. There's a first order experience of reality. And so the community, the narrative, the narrative, the, the experience of peace, love, joy, these experiences then over propositions or over uh, the language of propositions per se has priority. And so there's this sense, you know, in the Cartesian dualism that there is an, a loss of embodiment and in a, a narrative theology, a holistic theology, there is a return to an embodied selfhood in which the physical and the spiritual are integrated. There's no longer the soul versus the body. This is a brief introduction and we'll pursue James McClendon in greater detail. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.